Hey guys, I'm your host Tara A. Devlin and welcome to this week's episode of Kowabana, true Japanese scary stories from around the internet. Bankai Baffling Japanese Internet Mysteries Volume 3 is now out. If you enjoy the particular mysteries that only the internet can offer, then do head over and check it out right now. We also have a brand new design up in the Kowabana merchandise store. You can check that out at kowabana.store. We have shirts, mugs, stickers, masks and much more, so do check it out and help support the show at the same time. This week, we're looking at several stories of bizarre, creepy and honestly kind of horrifying hauntings. First up, this story is actually part of a series that I'll be covering over the next few episodes because it's quite long. We'll be looking at the first two parts this week, and then, over the next few episodes, we'll see it out to its horrifying conclusion, so stick around. This story starts out innocently enough, with a group of childhood friends going to visit one of the gang, but when they get there, well, their entire lives are about to change. Find out why in My Friend in the Tape. This happened to me last summer. First, let me just say that this is a true story, so it might be a little short and maybe not so interesting. However, this experience made me start to wonder if maybe ghosts really do exist. Up until then, I never believed in them. But now, well... I'm a full-time worker now, so I no longer live at home, but I always return to my parents' house for New Year's and the Obon holidays. I don't usually keep in contact or hang out with my childhood friends who still live in town, but when I arrived back home on this particular night, we all decided to head out to the river for a barbecue. A came to pick us up in his wagon, and B was already inside with a camera in hand. We then went to pick the others up one by one, like we always did. C and D, who both had the following day off, joined us, and then we decided to go pay E a visit even though we couldn't initially get in contact with him. A was four years older than the rest of us and always looked after us. Ever since I was a kid, he was like a big brother to me. He got a car license when we were in junior high and he always drove us around everywhere. He wasn't a terribly ambitious or selfish guy, nor did he really stand out too much. B was the type to get easily carried away, but he cared about his childhood friends more than anyone else. He practiced karate and shorinji kempo ever since he was small, so he was like our leader who always rushed in head first. But once he bought a camera, he was always there behind us filming everything. He started doing this after he started full-time work as well. When we all get together, those are the most precious memories for me, he said. C was the girl who lived next door to me ever since we were in elementary school. She remained close like family even after they moved. She was just like one of the boys up until 6th grade, but after that, she started to grow her hair and act more feminine. My parents honestly thought that C and I would get married one day, and every time I saw them after I started work, they were like, So, when's the wedding? I've known her since I was just a kid, so I don't really see her that way at all, but she's pretty popular with other men. Dee was always a free spirit who did whatever he wanted. As soon as he turned 18, 
he decided he was going to gamble on his life in Las Vegas and moved to America without speaking any English. He lost everything and almost became a vagrant there. The first thing he said upon returning home was, I sure would have been in deep shit if I didn't buy a return ticket first. E was accomplished in both sports and smarts. He was intelligent, physically strong, and a great judge of things. He was like a perfect main character you might see in a manga. His weak point was that he was rather outspoken, so this often resulted in small quarrels. In contrast to A, he was rather ambitious and a little full of himself. And once again, A is our designated driver, huh? I said in the car with a laugh. Dude, don't call me that. If I don't pick you up, then you'll all just park your junk at my house. So anyway, I heard that E quit his job. Seriously? I said. But he said that programming was pretty fun. What's he doing now? What a waste of a brain. Ah, yeah, I heard that too, B said. Well, it is E, so maybe he quit to start his own business or something. But still, I wonder what happened, I said. Well, he was student president in junior and high school, and he was first in his class at university, so I'm sure he had a good reason, B replied. I mean, he's already bought an apartment with cash at this age while I'm still living at home, A said with a laugh. Talk then turned to trivial matters. Hey, is eggplant on a stick really that good? D asked me. Hmm, you still smell the same. It puts me at ease, C said. Yeah, well, it's hot, you know, I replied. Before long, we arrived at E's house. We saw him standing in the window upstairs, so we called out, but I guess he didn't hear us. He seemed to just take a brief glance at us and then went back inside. He looked a little thinner than usual, but it was definitely E. We parked in front of the building and then B, C, D and I went to check on him. I went to press the button for his apartment, but then B said, He's probably not back at his room yet. But hey, the entrance will open just fine with the manager's code. He then easily opened the door. How did he know the manager's code? We quickly arrived at E's place. It seemed the air conditioner was set to 18 degrees, as usual. The front door was covered in condensation. We opened the door at the same time we pressed the intercom button, and then the four of us yelled in unison, E, we're heading out. But there was no response. We saw him enter the building just before. The lights were on, and so was the air conditioner. We decided to wait for a bit, thinking that maybe he took the stairs rather than the elevator. But several minutes passed, and still there was no sign of E. Was he inside? We decided to go in and have a look. We walked through the hall, which smelt of coconut, E's favourite smell. As we reached the living room door, I could see E inside. He seemed to be sleeping. There he is, I said, and then we all burst inside. E was lying down with his back to us. What the hell are you doing? 
we yelled together, the camera pointed at him. Despite how much noise we made, E didn't even twitch. Unsettled, we approached him just to discover that he was dead. He seemed to have been dead for quite some time, as his skin had changed colour and looked like it was about to start decomposing. I formally put my fingers to his cold neck to check for breathing or a pulse, but there were no signs of life. Nothing made any sense. We came up here chasing after E, and yet he had clearly been dead for quite some time. After confirming he was gone, we called the police, fire department, and E's family. B, holding the camera, started trembling as soon as I said, He's dead. Tears streamed down C's face as she clutched the edge of her skirt, and D started screaming. What the hell, man? We just saw him walking around a few minutes ago. Huh? A said when I called him. He was still waiting downstairs. What on earth are you talking about? We just saw him. He didn't believe me. The police and fire department are coming now, I said. It was all I could say. Before long they arrived and we explained the situation. We followed him up here, we said, and of course the police were confused. I caught it all on camera, B said, and then showed them what he recorded. In it, you could see E lit up by the car's headlights. We were all in shock. They soon finished interviewing us on the scene, and then forensics showed up. They confiscated the camera and SD card, and then let us go, saying they would contact us again in a few days. Unable to calm down, we went to a family restaurant for a bit. Then, as the sun started to rise, we all went our separate ways home. C didn't want to be alone, so she decided to join me. The next day, the police contacted us to come to the station for an interview. They soon let us go after telling them about what happened when we discovered him, but they still didn't know his cause of death, and there were several points that struck them as suspicious. They were still investigating to determine whether he died of illness or whether he'd been murdered. They showed us photos of his bedroom to see if they jogged our memories on anything, but the walls were painted red and covered in Shinto charms. It was creepy. We all returned to our regular daily lives after the Obon holidays, but we were still in shock over E's death. Around the start of September, we received news that E died of illness. He had been dead for about a week when we found him, but the air conditioning had kept him from decaying. And that was the end of that. Or so I thought. Around the start of October, I suddenly got a call from B. It was the first time he'd called me so far from the New Year holidays. I got my camera back, so I checked it again and... He seemed to be having a hard time saying what he wanted to say. You mean the footage with E, yeah? What about it? We watched it with the police that day, yeah? But the tape is... A little different now. Huh? Look, 
There's no way I'm going to be able to understand this over the phone, so burn it onto a CD for me and send it over. Also, the original data on that SD card is the last footage we have of V, so save that too, I said. Yeah, I'm not going to erase that, B said. But don't tell C. She's still upset and all. I knew that B had liked C since at least junior high school. I watched the CD when it arrived, and just like he said, it was definitely different to when we watched it on the day. E had just glanced at us, but in the video, he stared at us for several seconds. Did you edit this? I asked B, but he said he hadn't touched it. I enlarged it and watched it several times, but I couldn't find anything else different, so I left it at that. In November, another CD arrived from B. The video has changed again, said a letter inside. The file I copied onto my computer hasn't changed, only the one on the SD card has. When I watched it, E seemed to be talking to the camera. I couldn't hear anything, nor could I make out what he was saying, but his mouth was moving. When I returned home for the end of the year, eight of us childhood friends got together and held a big welcome home, year end, and year start party like we always did. The only thing different was that E wasn't there. Around lunchtime on January 1st, the party that had been going since December 31st finally ended and we all went our separate ways. I went back to my parents' house first and then to B's. Once there, we checked the video again and, once more, it had changed. It was difficult to make out, but it sounded like E was groaning. Maybe he was trying to tell us something. There was nothing we could do but wait until he could tell us. This month, February, I received a video where I could just barely hear him. Everyone, thank. I'm sorry. I can't. Don't go near. That's all we've been able to make out so far. The voice jumps in and out, so I may have misheard the first part where he was thanking us. Was the second part of the message trying to protect us from death? E's message is still ongoing and changing. If ghosts really do exist and you could talk to them, I'd love to see E again. What does he want to tell us? What happened to him? But I also want to tell him something. I want to tell him, thank you. Let's head straight into part two, with this story taking a bizarre and horrifying turn. It seems that things may be far, far more dangerous than they ever imagined. Find out why in My Friend in the Tape, part two. This is B. This is a follow-up to my friend in the tape. T, who posted the previous story, wrote everything that happened up until Golden Week of 2012. This is related to all of that, and I'm posting what he wrote. 
I wrote that after E's death, we returned to our regular daily lives. But after having seen such a strange situation take place firsthand, I decided to investigate it. I tried not to let the other three see his bulging, wide open eyes and the scratches on his neck. I can still vividly remember the insane photos the police showed me of his bedroom as well. During my investigations, I visited E's mother on numerous weekends to check that she was okay. His father passed away before I met him as a child, and she did her best to raise him all alone. Because it would take my friends about three hours one way on the plane to return to our hometown, or five hours on the bullet train, I decided not to contact any of them during my trips. I only contacted C, who cried every time she remembered home. My parents would have been worried if I showed up back home too often, so I often spent the night in a hotel with C instead, splitting the cost. Sorry B, we didn't do anything together, don't worry. After talking to E's mother about half a year after his death, I got permission to go through his apartment and belongings, and I found a laptop and a notebook stuck to the back of the drawer in his desk. They looked like they might hold some clues, so I borrowed them from his mother and took them home to investigate further. What is it about smart people? Like doctors, why is their handwriting always so messy? There were keywords written all over the place ignoring the lines, and calculations scribbled here and there. There was even some wild stuff like, what our friends should bring to the wedding of C and I. All of this was just in his head, of course. Just looking at the contents of the notebook made my head hurt. But then, as I reached the end, I found a page with the words, Campsite Candidates, written in large letters. Beneath that, there were various words written, like several numbers, and the words, Abandoned Road, and Cave. Using the numbers as latitude and longitude, I found a potential campsite candidate, and then I found a hidden folder on his PC with those same numbers that was locked behind a password. I tried various words related to E, and in the end, it was C's name that unlocked it. Inside was a report on the location in question, and a situation forecast. It seemed that while researching for our yearly summer camp, he came across something interesting. Every year, all of us childhood friends always went camping together during the summer. When we were in elementary school, our parents went camping with us, but when A got his driver's license when we were in junior high, we went alone after that. And once our parents stopped joining us, well, we didn't have much money, so our camps tended to be outside of camping grounds, and all we had was just a bit of food and water, some snacks and firewood. That was it. It was more like a survival camp. But it was the thing I looked forward to most each year, maybe because I lived in the city, and it was a nice escape to spend some time in nature. So anyway, that was why it was hard to find places to camp, and in some worst-case scenarios, we had to camp in the forest by the side of the road near the prefectural border. When I put the coordinates into a navigation map I found in E's laptop, 
It pointed to a mountain on the border. There were also several photos in the hidden folder of the site in question, so I looked at them in order. There was an abandoned road, a river, a waterfall, the waterfall basin, and a cell phone, out of range. And then, a cave next to the basin. The waterfall was about 20 minutes from the river by the abandoned road, and there was a cave next to that, so it seemed that camping there was possible. I was impressed that he even tested the quality of the river water with a testing kit first. After reading a little more, it seemed the cave appeared after a recent earthquake caused a cliff to collapse. The cave was two metres high and one and a half metres wide. It gradually got narrower the further you went in and was about 20 metres long. The walls weren't wet and there was no airflow, so it was a dead end. The rock walls were also solid, so there was little fear of collapse. However, even though this was a natural cave that appeared after a cliff collapsed in an earthquake, there were traces of artificial blockage at the rear. The wall beside the rear was about to collapse and another cave continued even further in. While the cave on this side was made of natural rock, the cave on the other side was about 70 centimetres long and wide and it was partially walled off with bricks or something man-made. E managed to make a hole in the wall and enter the other cave, but the other cave didn't lead outside, but rather down into the ground. Because he wasn't sure of the oxygen levels or if there might be toxic gases, he went home for the day, then returned with a manual compressor. Something like a vaporizer you might find in a home centre with an additional tank. He walked for a while as he pumped air into his mask, and then it seemed he finally reached the deepest part of the cave. He gradually reduced the air pressure and checked to see if he could breathe freely, as he would pass out immediately if it was full of gas. The room was about 3 by 5 metres, and in the back was something like a man-made altar. He examined it, and found a pattern he'd never seen before, alongside something that looked like a sarcophagus. There was a beautiful black stone, and when he touched it, he heard a voice in his head, but he had no idea what it was saying. It was a language he'd never heard before. What the hell? He grew more and more terrified, and then ran from the cave. Even though it should have only been around two in the afternoon, Outside was pitch black, and his watch had stopped at one. The darkness and the voices that wouldn't stop scared him to the bottom of his soul, so he immediately went home. Although he couldn't remember much, apparently about eight hours had passed. He tried to go to bed, but the voices wouldn't stop, so he got up and summarised everything that happened. Nothing made sense after touching that sarcophagus, however, so he got annoyed and gave up. He decided to visit a specialist the next day, wondering if schizophrenia was the cause of the voices that wouldn't stop. And after that, his diary took a turn, recording events in mostly words and short sentences. He took medicine, but his symptoms got worse by the day. On the fifth day after touching the sarcophagus, 
he started to see something like red mist clouding his vision. He visited the doctor and told them that things were getting worse, so please change his medicine. But nothing worked. On the 15th day, he did some research on the internet and requested help from various sects. He visited them day after day, but nothing helped. On the 27th day, he was so frightened about the red mist clouding his vision that he painted his room red, so he couldn't see it. On the 35th day, he visited a shrine and told them he was being haunted by something big and powerful. He received some charms and put them up in his room, although he had no idea if they would help. On the 40th day, a spirit medium recommended a particular charm, and so he bought it. On the 45th day, an eye started looking at him through the haze, although he couldn't tell if it was human or animal. On the 50th day, neither the medicines nor charms worked. He had no idea what the cause was, nor did he understand why. On the 70th day, the voices that lived non-stop in his head spoke Japanese for a moment. It's time, they said. Seemed he was nearing the end. He wrote a letter. To mum, thank you for giving birth to me. Thank you for raising me. After dad died, I know that you didn't get married again for my sake, even though you were young. I know that you worked your hardest without receiving welfare for my benefit. I was always worried when I saw you passed out in the living room after working so hard all day. But thanks to you, I had the best life with the best friends. Thank you. To all my friends, I really wanted to write to you individually, but I don't think I have the time. I really wanted to go camping with you guys this year again too. I can't put into words how thankful I am and how much you saved me. Especially A, one year older than me. D, the same age as me. B, one year younger than me. And T and C, two years younger than me. We're all different ages, but we all lived close together. I didn't think that we'd be friends for our entire lives. My life would have been worthless without you guys in it. Thank you. That was the end of the diary in his notebook and computer. There was no record of the 71st day, which was about a week before I returned home and the day they think he died. Most of the files in the hidden computer were also password protected, so it took a while to open them, but they explained what I wrote above. I think I now understand what E was trying to say in that video B sent just before Golden Week. Everyone, thank you. I'm sorry I can't hang out with you guys anymore. There is a dangerous location on the prefectural border. Don't go near it. E has still been looking out for us even after death, and it makes me mad that that sarcophagus caused all of this even more. But as I was researching all this, I heard a bell ring in my head. I'll be investigating that cave during the summer because of the danger of winter snow. During Golden Week, I'll do some recon and prepare the stuff I need to go there myself. 
Remember to tune in to upcoming episodes to hear the rest of this series and see where the story is going. But up next, we're taking a trip to a house that appears to be haunted. Or perhaps it's the family itself that is actually haunted. Find out why in The Long Lasting Curiosity. My parents' house in Hiroshima was built 30 years ago, and for quite some time now, a strange woman has appeared there out of nowhere. My older brother was the first person to see her about 15 years ago. He was five at the time. My mother, older sister, older brother and I were sleeping in a small room by the veranda on the first floor. At about three or four in the morning, as the sun was about to rise, my brother suddenly woke my sister up. Hey, did you hear that? He said. I can hear someone walking on the veranda outside. I don't know the full details because I heard all this later, but apparently he saw a woman standing on the veranda outside facing backwards. It was too dark to see well, but she seemed to be wearing a blue skirt and her neck was bent at an unnatural angle. I didn't see anything like that our sister insisted, and our mother got angry too. Don't wake me up so early. But being that my brother was only five and described the scene so clearly, she was a little creeped out. Thinking that maybe someone uninvited was hanging around, the next day my father and grandfather searched the large barn next to the house. Of course, there was nobody there. One year later, We moved to Niigata for my father's job. One day, six months after we moved, I was playing the Super Famicom with my brother on the first floor. He was laughing as he played Super Mario, but then suddenly, he fell quiet. I looked at him like, what's wrong? But he'd gone white as a ghost and his eyes were wide open. Then he suddenly started choking and spat up the Mitsuya cider he'd just been drinking all over the tatami mats. It was all so sudden, so I just watched him in dumbfounded silence. But then our father came rushing into the room at the sound of my brother's chokes and rubbed his back. They went to the hospital, but it wasn't like he had a cold, nor was it food poisoning. They asked him why he threw up, and he said that he saw that same strange woman from Hiroshima, standing on the other side of the window. I was scared or worked up or some feeling I couldn't quite understand, and when we told our parents about that woman, for some reason they got really angry and went off on us. Then, about five months after that, we moved to Kanagawa. When I asked them why we moved, my parents wouldn't answer me and got angry again. My sister didn't know either, so she cried. Two years passed living in Kanagawa, and then one day, when I was seven and my brother was twelve, we were hanging out at home with one of his friends, just the three of us, playing Crash Bandicoot too. We were so absorbed in the game that, next thing we knew, it was already dark outside and just about to hit 7pm. Our mother got home from shopping with her PTA friends and got angry at my brother's friend, telling him to go home already. Just as we were about to say goodbye to him at the front door, my brother suddenly took a step back 
and then started running away from the door. Everyone watched him in shock, but then his expression froze, and he looked unwell. He stood there like that for about five seconds maybe, and then ran to the kitchen. None of us had any idea what was going on. Maybe he really needed to use the toilet, we said, and then saw his friend off. What was all that about? Our mother asked my brother, and apparently he saw a pale foot sticking out from the shadows of the shoeboxes to the right side of the door. Our mother listened in silence, but her expression changed as well. She looked just as upset. Another year later, our grandfather died, and so we decided to move back to Hiroshima. My grandfather was kind and well-liked by the locals, so lots of people came to his funeral, and it was a huge affair with three monks making an appearance as well. Then one day, a week later, we got the photos back from the funeral. I was a stupid kid, so I was like, All right, let's find some ghost photos, as I looked at them. Both my parents got angry again. But as I looked at them again later, I found three photos with something strange in them. The first photo was a picture of everyone gathered with the veranda in the background, but there appeared to be some black hair or something stuck to the glass door behind it. The second was a photo I took for fun of my brother and I with the hallway behind us, but the hallway was oddly dark and it looked like half a face with wide eyes was peeking out from behind the wall. The third was taken looking through the glass door and there were very clear handprints on it. Not like fingerprints or anything, but rather a see-through hand pressed against it. I was only nine years old or so at the time, just a kid, so I didn't really understand what I was looking at. At any rate, I tried to tell my parents about it, but they told me it was just my imagination, and then took the photos to a temple. Five years passed after that. We renovated the family home, making the second floor larger and expanding it to five rooms. My brother's room moved to only get sunlight from the west, so during the day, it was rather dark. One day, as I was about to go upstairs, I heard creaking sounds coming from my brother's empty room. It then sounded like maybe someone was kicking the wall? It was rather violent, and although I was scared, I decided to check it out. A woman's head was sitting on the top of the curtain rail. Her face was unnaturally dark, and the only thing I could see was her mouth hanging open. A headless body hung from the light string, and its feet were hitting the wall. I screamed like some sort of manga character and fell down the stairs. I ran to the living room on the first floor to tell my father, who was watching TV, what I'd just seen. Huh? He said over and over as he listened to my story, and then... He ran up to the second floor right away. I was so frightened that I froze on the spot and kept my eyes glued to the TV. And then about ten seconds later, my father returned. He said nothing was there. That night, I told my brother what I saw when he got home, and his face went pale. Seriously? For real? He said, 
and started preparing a bed to sleep in the spare room downstairs. I asked my grandmother if there had been any accidents around the house sometime in the past, and she said that a long time ago, a taxi driver died in a car crash on the road behind the house. There was a river right next to that road, and he drove into it and died. Because there were no brake marks, the police ruled it a suicide and took the body away. My grandmother went with a friend to see what all the commotion was about, but apparently the driver's face looked stiff as he was carried away on the stretcher. There had long been accidents in the area, which was odd, considering that visibility was good. Even I saw two or three accidents myself. Or rather, I heard them, like the sound of a car flipping over and wheels turning, etc. About four years later, my brother moved to Yamaguchi for university. I'd been sharing a room with our mother up until that point, but then I was able to take over his room. Roughly a year after that, I crawled into bed one night, exhausted from my junior high club activities, but for some reason, I couldn't sleep. I got into bed at 9pm, and yet, by 11, I still couldn't fall asleep. Suddenly, the sound of a woman's crazed laughter filled the air, and I jumped up with terrifying speed, covered in goosebumps. The cackling continued, like a weird, old-fashioned laugh. I rushed to wake up my mum and sister and tell them what happened. The three of us checked my room, but there was nothing different or strange about it. Still, as embarrassing as it was, I decided to sleep in my mum's room that night. Six months passed, and one day, my sister had two of her friends over for the night. They were taking pictures together in her room or something. My sister had the pictures developed a week later, but... When she saw them, she came to me pale-faced. There's something strange in these photos we took, she said, handing me the photos. Just like she said, you could clearly see the silhouette of a woman looking down, and a bald man's face peeking through the window behind my sister. She said there was something strange in the photo taken of her at her school's culture festival as well. She was so creeped out that she decided to take them both to a temple to be cleansed. She was also worried about the woman my brother had seen long ago, and the head I saw in his room, that she apparently told the monk at the temple about it. He told her the following. Does your house, by any chance, happen to have a barn? Barns are normally used to store things, but in the past, when someone with mental handicaps was born, well... They used to hide them away in there. If your house was built over 30 years ago, then perhaps that custom was still in place then. You might want to make an offering and chant some sutras, just in case, he said. I asked my grandmother about the barn and she said that it had been there since before they started living there. It was pretty old then, so my grandfather had strengthened it numerous times with new wood. My father had never heard of any such custom, and he went to check for himself, but didn't find anything inside the barn that looked like that. However, he did find one space that was painted unnaturally compared to the rest, but the floor to get there was hammered down so that nobody could reach it. And finally, 
a woman's somewhat difficult older brother passes away, but it seems he has one last thing to say. Find out what in One Last Greeting. The other day, my older brother passed away. He was a serious, methodical person, perhaps too much so, and so he struggled to adjust to society and spent most of his life locked away in our parents' home. This was all well and good while my parents were still alive, but when they passed away, the house became a dump. Neither my sister nor I lived at home anymore, but we did our best to drop in and check on him, although it changed very little about the situation. As time went on, my brother was in and out of the hospital due to his health. He seemed to be in a lot of pain, but I think, from a certain point of view, he was finally able to be at peace. After the funeral, life went back to normal, but then something strange started happening at home. Hey, what's that sound? My husband woke me up around 4am one morning. A melody was playing somewhere in the house. It was playing the nursery rhyme, London Bridge. Where was it coming from? I looked all through the house for what might be making the sound, and then I found a bunch of music boxes lined up on the bookshelf. By that time, the music had stopped. Long ago, our family had really been into collecting music boxes, and so there were four of them from that time sitting on my shelf. But it had been more than ten years since I had touched any of them. I picked them up one by one to check each melody, None of them were the same tune. I then picked up the last one and turned the handle. But it must have been broken. It wouldn't play. I turned it over and checked the writing beneath it, and it said the melody it played was London Bridge. It was truly bizarre that this broken music box played a melody. Both my husband and I went pale, but somehow it felt like my brother had returned to give me one last greeting. My brother, who was so serious and difficult to live with, is no doubt doing just fine in heaven. I'm sure of it. Don't forget to check out Bunkai, Baffling Japanese Internet Mysteries Volume 3, out on Amazon right now. And check out our newly revamped merchandise store at kowabana.store. And if you'd like to chat about this week's stories, come and join us in the Kowabana Discord. You can find that link in the description or on koobana.net. You can also check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash Tara A. Devlin for exclusive bonus stories and extras, or our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Japan for all sorts of Japanese horror you won't find anywhere else. Thanks guys, stay safe and I'll see you again next time for even more Koobana, true Japanese scary stories from around the internet. Want even more scary stories? Head over to koobana.net for new translations every week. You can also join our Patreon for exclusive stories you won't find anywhere else. Head over to koobana.net now. <laughs>